The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. So glad that you are with us. I don't know if sweater weather has officially arrived in Texas or not, but I am here for it. So uh, I may be sweating by the end of this sermon, but I am here for that sweater weather. If you have your Bible, grab it and let's go to Psalm 33, Psalm 33 this morning as we continue in our More of You sermon series. And and as we begin this morning, I've got a a question, a, a big, deep philosophical question for you this morning to ponder. Why are you here? Why are you here? It's a big, deep, philosophical, and an existential question. It's also a very practical, pragmatic, uh, literal question. Why are you here now? At the existential, philosophical level, a a paleontologist, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, once answered this question this way. Quote, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a per peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. Remind me not to go to a paleontologist if looking for a little meaning and purpose for life, right? Um, Are we more than merely cosmic accidents? More than merely the... the, um, product of chance and time why are we here what does it mean to be human but also at a very literal practical um, uh, question why are you here now whether you're joining us here in the room whether you're joining us online why are you here because there's all kind of other places you could be there's all kind of other things that you could be doing why are you here and I want to suggest this morning That the answer to both of those questions, both the deep existential philosophical question and the literal practical question, the answer is the same. The answer is worship. That we are here as human beings because we are made for worship. That that God doesn't need our worship. God has eternally existed in the divine community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, eternally existent in it as Trinity. And yet out of the overflow of love within the life of the Trinity, God created human beings that we might worship him. That we might love him in return. So we exist to worship. And we're here to worship. This morning, we're going to talk about worship. We're continuing in this sermon series called More of You. We're, we've said that the, that title points to the idea that it's the cry of our heart that says, Jesus, I want more of you. I want more of you in my life, more of your character, more of your heart. But the flip side of that is that we only get more of him as he gets more of us. As we open up more and more areas of our life his transforming work. We've said this is a series that's all about spiritual formation, about this deep work of interchange accomplished by the Holy Spirit that takes place in our lives so that we become more and more like Jesus and therefore more and more like our true selves. As we become more like Jesus, we become more the person that God has made us to be. And in this series, we've been talking about the practices that we engage in following the way of Jesus. We began talking about scripture and the place that scripture has in this transformation process in our lives. As we embrace the mind of Christ 
and experience the renewing of our minds. And then we talked about silence and solitude, carving out space and time in our lives to commune with God in prayer. Then last week, Craig talked about the importance of community, how important it is in our areas of struggle that we find a community of fellow struggles, people to walk with over the long haul. This morning, we're going to talk about worship. In her book, So Much More, Deborah Reinstra says that worship is the central workshop where God engages in his soul-shaping work. The venue of worship is one of the most important places where this process of transformation takes place in our lives. And so this morning, I simply want to talk with you about the what of worship and the why of worship. I want to talk about what worship is and then why we pursue it. And so we're going to look at this passage in Psalm 33 in just a minute that really gets at the the why of worship. But first, I want to just talk about the what of worship. What is worship? And I have a simple little definition that, as I was thinking about this, that I think helps us to frame what it is that we do when we engage together in worship, as well as, uh, as how worship informs the way that we live our lives during the week. And it just goes like this. Worship is offering our attention, affection, and allegiance to God gathered with the church and scattered in the world. Worship is an offering to God. It is an offering of our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. And it's something that we do both when we gather together for corporate worship, and it's what we do as we live lives of worship in our everyday life. Can you just say that little definition out loud with me? Let's say it together. Worship is offering our attention, affection, and allegiance to God gathered with the church and scattered in the world. Now I want to talk about that last phrase first, gathered and scattered, right? Worship is about gathering together, but it's also about scattering. It's about being together in the presence of God, in the presence of each other, that we come together for corporate worship. And it's really here that we are formed and fueled and sent to live lives of worship every day. So we gather here, to be sent back into the world to live lives of worship, gathered and scattered. But I want, to, uh, I want to talk a little bit this morning about the elephant in the room. And I think the elephant in the room this morning is who's not in the room, right? I mean, those of us have been around IBC a long time, you sort of look around and you go, well, there's a lot of empty seats in here this morning. It doesn't look like the same church that we were before the pandemic. This is a phenomena that churches across the country are experiencing right now. And it's something that we need to think about and talk about, wrestle with together. I do believe that part of it is that certainly over the course of the last couple of years that we have lost people, maybe people that you know that have been part of IBC. And that for various reasons, through the course of this two-year period, people that have decided, I'm going to worship somewhere closer to home, or I'm going to just engage in a different community. We've certainly lived through some challenging cultural times that have caused some shuffling in churches around the country. But there's also been a difference in the way in which we engage worship. We had online worship services prior to the pandemic, and, and usually there would be a couple hundred people each week that would join us online, just Oftentimes people who were sick or people who were traveling or just otherwise unable to be here. Of course, we went through that period where all of us were every week worshiping online only. I had to get used to just preaching into a camera. It was, it was weird, y'all. Um, and it was weird for you too to sit and listen to a sermon on your sofa. And yet a lot of us have kind of become very accustomed to that over time. 
And so I mentioned to you a few weeks back that we consistently see more people joining us online than we do every week here together in the building. Some numbers that kind of um, give you some context for that, that, that over the course of just the last eight weeks, if you look at this eight-week segment, what you find is that we see 791 online views on average over this eight-week period, 791. And, and we've tried our best to, to take out any extraneous numbers. It's not just if it sort of flies through somebody's feed on Facebook. This is the number of people that log on to our YouTube channel, go to our website, or that engage on Facebook over a period of time, 791. Now, the experts who are writing about this stuff for churches say, remember that on the other side of that screen, that, that, that view might be a couple that's watching, might be a whole family that's watching. So in order to gauge the accurate kind of assessment of the number of people that are, that are part of your worship experience, they suggest multiply that number by 1.3. If you do that for our eight-week average, that comes out to 1,028 people that are engaging with us as part of our online worship experience. Now, you then look around the room and you recognize there's less than that in here. And over that same eight-week period, uh, that, uh, that average for us in person, which has included a couple of Sundays that were some of our lowest attended since before Easter, that number is 649. So you add those two numbers together, and what you come out with is 1,677 people engaging with our worship experience on average over these eight weeks. What's really interesting is if you go back to the same eight-week period prior to COVID, it's right about the same number. I mean, within just a handful. So on the one hand, that is encouraging to me because it's just a reminder that even though we see a lot of empty seats, we, we, we've stayed together as a community. There's people that are with us. They're just not here in the room with us. So that encourages me. But, but on the other hand, I think, I think it's still a challenge that as, as I've said um, in recent weeks, I believe that our experience of online worship and community is a wonderful supplement to our experience of worship and community, right? It's a wonderful supplement to, but it's a terrible replacement for our experience of worship and community. That I believe that we're made to be together. This came powerfully home to me just a, a couple of weeks ago. I, every week I come down here and I have some great conversations with folks after the service. And so a couple of weeks back, a, a woman approached me and it was just, it was one of the most um, meaningful and, and encouraging conversations that I've had down here in a while. She approached me with tears in her eyes and uh, she began to explain to me that this was her first time to be back in person since before the pandemic began. And that uh, she had really determined, she kind of settled in her own heart that I, I'm just going to do online. I, I just, I don't have to actually be there to be a part of the church. I'm just going to do online. And so she had kind of settled that. That's what she was doing. But she said something this morning just prompted me to get up and come. And she said, I, I came in and partway through the first song, I just started to cry. And I cried all the way through the singing and I cried all the way through the announcements. And she said, Barry, I cried all the way through your sermon. And then she's crying all the way through trying to tell me the story because she had forgotten how powerful and how important it is for us to be together. Friends, we were made to be in the presence of God, in the presence of each other. 
It reminds me of the words of the psalmist that says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. We were made to be in the presence of God, in the presence of each other. And so if if you're joining us online, we're so glad that you are. It's a wonderful supplement to our life of worship and community. But it's a terrible replacement for that we want to be together. So worship is about the gathering and the scattering, but it's the gathering, the scattering to offer to God, our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. And I don't think I have to work too hard to persuade you that there's all kinds of things in the world right now that are competing with us for our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. Am I right? So many things that are competing for our attention, our affection, and our allegiance. In her book, Distracted, Maggie Jackson talks about the the catastrophic effects of our loss of the capacity for deep, sustained attention. Here's what she says. She says, the way that we live is eroding our capacity for deep, sustained, perceptive attention, which are the building blocks of intimacy, wisdom, and cultural progress. We could camp out right there for a little bit because those are a really big deal. She says, moreover, this disintegration may come at a great cost to ourselves and our society. Our old conceptions of space and time and place have been shattered. This is why we're less and less able to see and hear and comprehend what's relevant and permanent. Why so many of us feel that we can barely keep our heads above water. Anybody relate to that? And our days are marked by perpetual loose ends. What's more, the waning powers of attention is occurring at such a rate and in so many areas of life that the erosion is reaching critical mass. We are on the verge of losing our capacity as a society for deep, sustained focus. In short, we're slipping toward a new dark age. Now that's ominous. And yet, when I look around the world, and even when I look at my own life, I think she's onto something. That we are increasingly living such fragmented, distracted lives. And worship is ultimately about giving our attention to God. Both when we come here together to do that, and as we're scattered in the world to give our attention, to give our affection, that, that to give God our hearts, to give him our love. And, and that we are, as human beings, we are uh, made to love, that we make our way in the world by what we love. We're not primarily just thinking things that think our way through the world. We're primarily loving things, right? Our lives are shaped by what we love. And yet we're called to be people who love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, that we make our way in the world by what we love, giving our attention, our affection, and our allegiance to God. And again, there's so many things that are competing for our allegiance. There are brands out there that are competing for your allegiance as a consumer. Your college football teams are competing for your allegiance, right? Uh, politicians and political parties that are, that are vying for your allegiance. And the list could go on and on. So many things in this world that want your allegiance. But we're reminded that the stuff of earth competes for the allegiance that we owe first and foremost only to God 
and him alone. Michael Gorman in his book, Reading Revelation, responsibly puts it this way. He said, the worship of God is the heartbeat of the cosmos. And even when humans don't see it, participate in it, or value it, only God is worthy to receive what others, especially powerful political figures, may want or demand. Our total devotion, our praise, and our crowns. God alone is worthy of our ultimate allegiance. And worship is our offering to God, our attention, our affection, and our allegiance, both as we scatter or as we gather and as we scatter. That's the what of worship. Now, I want to think with you a little bit about the why of worship. And I want to look with you at this Psalm, Psalm 33, that I think addresses the why of our worship. The first few verses describe worship, and then there's a turn, and I'll, I'll show it to you as we read through. Let's look, Psalm 33, beginning in verse 1. The psalmist writes, sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. God loves, he delights to hear us sing, to praise him, to worship him. But then verse four, four. And that's the word you wanna, you wanna underline, you wanna circle, you wanna highlight. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all that he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Everything that comes after that little word for tells us why we're to worship God. Worship is offering our attention, affection, and allegiance to God for who he is and what he has done. And the psalmist here rehearses with us some of who he is, some of what he's done. And the first thing that he says is for the word of the Lord is right and true. God has given us his truth. He's given us his word to guide us. Truth for life. C.S. Lewis once said, you can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get some splinters. I love that, don't you? You can't go against the grain of the universe and not expect to get some splinters. And God has given us his word to, to guide us in a life that lives in with the grain of the universe. He's given his word to, to guide us into what the fully human life, what full human flourishing looks like. He's given us his truth. And what comes out of us in response is worship. So first, we worship because of God's truth. Second, the psalmist says, he is faithful in all that he does. He's faithful in all that he does. We worship God in response to his faithfulness. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about my sister the last couple of weeks. And uh, the reason for that is that um, we've, we've had a, a few meetings the past uh, couple of weeks. And Brian Eck, our executive pastor, has used this question at the beginning of those meetings as kind of an icebreaker. If you're not taking notes on the rest of the sermon, you'll want to take notes on this because you're going to want to use it at your next dinner party. Okay? Here's the icebreaker question. He said, if or when they make a documentary about your life, right? Because let's face it, some of you, we know it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, right? If or when they make a documentary about your life, what would be your favorite scene? Isn't that a fun question? 
Right? What would be the scene from your documentary that would just cause you to smile, maybe to, to laugh, that would just fill your heart with delight? What would be your favorite scene of your documentary? And so we, we're engaging in this conversation and there was a scene from my life that came to my mind and there's some other bigger, more important ones perhaps, but this one was just really special, just really brought joy to my heart. And it was the day that my wife and my sister met for the very first time. Now, my wife was just my girlfriend at the time. We had been dating for about six weeks. And so this was a really big step because now it's meet the sister time. My sister was a force of nature. She was just an amazing, amazing person. And so this is a big deal to introduce the girlfriend to my sister. So what we decided to do was to go resale shopping. My sister loved to go resale shopping. And so she found kind of this high-end resale place. And we were over there and and the girls are looking at stuff. And I'm over in the guy's area looking at things. and, And my sister comes over to me. And she says, I need you to go outside. I'm like, huh? But, but as I mentioned, my sister was something of a force of nature. And so she just had this way of getting people to do whatever she said. So sure enough, I go outside. I'm, I'm standing in the parking lot. I have no idea what's going on. Well, it turns out inside, my sister had found on a rack a wedding dress and she forced Kim into the fitting room and told her to try on the dress. And Kim's going, what's, what's happening right now? <laughs> and yet, because my sister had a way of persuading people, she, she tried on the dress and it fit like a glove. And so Amy says to Kim, can I buy it for you? <laughs> and Kim's going, wait, wait, what? She says, can I buy it for you? She says, Amy, he hasn't asked me yet, right? I was already thinking about it, but, but we weren't there yet. So, so Amy then leaves her in the wedding dress, in the, in the fitting room, and comes out and finds me in the parking lot. And she says, I found a wedding dress. Can I buy it for you? Amy, I haven't asked her yet. Well, do you want to ask her today? <laughs> and this was one of the few times in my life where I actually wasn't persuaded to do what my sister was pressuring me to do. And so uh, six months later, we did get engaged. And my sister called me like three or four times the night she knew I was popping the question to find out if I had asked yet because she wanted to call the store. And so finally, when I said, yes, I've asked, and she said, yes, Amy calls up the store, the dress is still there. She talks them down on the price because she knows how long it's been hanging on the rack. And that was the dress that, that Kim wore on our wedding day. It was amazing. Yes. Now you're clapping because it's a fun story, but you're also going, but what on earth does that have to do with the sermon? (laughs) Honestly, not very much, quite frankly. Um, But it's what's had me thinking a lot about my sister the last couple of weeks. It's because some of you know the story that my sister died of cancer 12 years ago. And uh, I'll never forget in those last days that I was there with her in the hospital and one of the very last conversations that we had, Amy Amy loved that verse from Jeremiah 29. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and hope. And uh, as she was there in that bed dying of cancer, she, she just looked me in the eyes and, and she said, Barry, I want you to tell everybody that I still believe that's true. What she was saying to me that day is, I still believe that God is faithful. That even when his faithfulness doesn't look like what we think faithfulness might ought to look like, I still believe that God is faithful. And we're reminded from this passage that part of the reason why we worship God is that he is faithful. 
throughout all of our experiences, whatever it is that we're facing, the joys, the, 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 the sorrows, whatever it is that we're going through, God is faithful. And we worship him in response. The truth of God, the faithfulness of God. Then looks what the psalmist says next. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The justice of God. The, the, the psalmist here uses two Hebrew words, um, mishpat and tzedakah. And, and these two words, they both essentially mean justice. Scholars suggest that one of them refers more to what we might call retributive justice. That is the bad guys getting what's coming to them. The other to what we might call distributive justice. That is making sure everybody has what they need to flourish. And the thing is, is that when you start talking about justice in the church in these days, people get a little squirmy, don't they? Right? Because there are concerns about perhaps a misconception of justice pervading the cultural moment. And so when you start talking about justice in the church, people start getting a little uncomfortable. But friends, we can't stop talking about justice because it is one of the central themes of the Bible. That this passage says, God loves justice. That justice is woven throughout the Bible. It's what God does, what God expects from his people and what God will one day bring. A couple of weeks ago, I offered you a simple little definition that comes from John M. Perkins, the civil rights activist and preacher. And he says that justice, biblical justice, is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. Our pursuit of justice is pursuing things being set right in the world. Things being set in accordance with the way that God established them to be and will ultimately establish them fully and finally when his kingdom comes in its fullness. And that God loves justice. And so should we. So when we start talking about justice, we're not getting political, we're getting biblical. Because this is what is near to the heart of God. The the justice God loves, the justice God does, the justice God expects, and the justice that God will one day bring. And we worship him in response. The truth of God, the faithfulness of God, the justice of God. And then look at the final one. The earth is full of his unfailing love. This is that little word that we've talked about around here, that little word chesed. And you got to get the, the growl in there to get it right. Chesed, the, the loyal love, the steadfast love, the covenant love of God. That when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed and loyal love. One of my favorite depictions in all the Bible of this loyal love of God It's found in Isaiah chapter 49. It's a verse that that doesn't appeal to to God as father, but actually um, shows the mother-like character of the love of God. The Lord speaks to the prophet and said, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And in the cross of Jesus, that has literally become true. That Jesus, who is now forever the God-man, 
continues to bear the scars of his cross that are a declaration, a demonstration of his love for you and for me. In the cross of Jesus, this has literally become true. That Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate his great love for you and for me. And we worship him in response. Worship is the offering of our attention, affection, and allegiance to God for who he is and what he's done. Both gathered with the church and scattered in the world. So why are you here? Worship. We were made to worship. And we're here to be formed and fueled and sent to live lives of worship. To give God our attention, allegiance, and affection. And I want to just end with two very simple admonitions for you. One, be here for worship. I know some of you are joining us online and some of you are joining us maybe from a long way away. Some of you have unique challenges that keep you home. But, but if you're able to be here, be here. Because we were made to be in the presence of God, in the presence of each other. Let's be together for worship. And the second thing is live lives of worship. This week, be mindful of what is competing for your attention. What's competing for your affection? And what's competing for your allegiance? And each day for us to reorient ourselves to God and say, God, I want to live a life of worship to you today. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.